Y'all keep hanging out for a second. We're having a little technical difficulty. Y'all ever heard that saying, uh, he who smiles when things go wrong has a computer to blame it on? It's the truth. Blue 47. Okay. Omaha. All right. Well, uh, you want, should, I, should I go ahead and preach first? What do you think? Sure. All right. We're going to preach. Get your Bibles. We'll do that. You do. All right, come on. Hey, our whole church in the park thing started because there was a gas leak, okay? So, I don't know, we may start preaching first just because of this. Uh, probably not. So, if you got a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn. Now, I told you we're going to do summer in the Psalms. I'm not lying to you, but I just want you to know something different. Um, we're going to be in First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. And you can watch as they record me. First Peter chapter 2. Everybody okay? Yeah. First Peter chapter 2. And we're going to begin First Peter chapter 2. I'm in James. Hold on one second. I wasn't prepared yet. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. I got to tell you a story. I'm going to come down for this one, all right? Can you see me still? I know I'm short, but okay. So, no, we're in Peter. First, sorry, First Peter chapter 2. Um, we, I was, I, I mentioned I was in, in North Alabama this week, and I got the honor and privilege of doing a camp for the student ministry of Temple Baptist Church. Um, they, they did this thing called Mission Blitz, and it's, they had about 100 students going out in the, into the, the, the surrounding areas and doing mission projects all around, which made, was made very difficult by a tropical storm. We ended up in all sorts of places. We went to a, a uh, home for special needs adults. And got our school for special needs adults, got to work with them. That was awesome. And then we went to a school for special needs kids, and that was a great blessing. We went all over the place doing these type of things. And it reminds me of something we used to do in Macon called Everybody Splash. Splash was an acronym because we got real cute, okay? And we stole it from somebody else. There's nothing new under the sun, okay? We gave them credit, but Splash stood for showing people love and sharing him. And so we did this thing where there was a gated community right across from us, and there was about... 1,200 houses and 5,000 people that lived in that community. So basically, <laughs> Hartsville was right across the street from us in this community of Macon, and it was gated. And so we decided we wanted to reach those people with, for Jesus. And so we would send in people, and we'd give them one house to start with, and we'd give them a territory. Like, you have streets, this street, this street, and this street, okay? And so that would be, that would be where the, they would start off, and they would go to the first house they picked, and then they would just knock on doors randomly, and they would have this big trailer full of yard equipment, and they'd go and work in people's houses, they go work in yards, and it was a, every, we had about seven or eight teams of about ten people that would go out and do these things. And it's a little, made it a little awkward and difficult because when you walked in, or when you walked up to a house, you had to knock on the door and be like, hey, your yard looks bad. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what we did. We had that discussion like, hey, your yard looks bad, you know? So that, that's kind of, that's, that was a hard start, but once you got there, people opened up to you because you're serving them in Jesus' name. It was pretty awesome. And so we got to do this. I'm going to tell you about this one time in particular. We sent this group over to this house. And, and, I, and, I, and what I did is I kind of like circled Lake Wildwood, which that was the neighborhood. And I would find people, if they, if they needed something, if they needed more water in their cooler, I'd go get it. 
If they needed me to go get, like, hey, we need more gloves, okay? I'd go get gloves, work gloves, so they could do it. If they needed something, they needed gas for the lawnmowers, I went and got it. They needed, that's what I did. And, so I'd get, and then I'd go and check on every house and see the progress of work, take pictures so we could put it on a video. That's my job. I was kind of orbiting the neighborhood. Now, when, we got, when I got to one of the houses, there was a young man there, there, and his name is Thomas. Now he is a worship leader and student pastor up in North Georgia. God had called him into ministry. He's about 17 years old at this point. He's a junior, going to be a senior. He comes up to me with big eyes. He says, Matt, I need to talk to you. And I was like, Thomas, really, I don't have a chance to talk right now. I, it's not, it's not going to work. Can we talk? Is it, unless it's super important, can we talk later? He's like, yeah, we can talk later. But his eyes were like saucers. I knew we needed to talk. By the end of the day, when all, when all the groups had come back, Thomas is back at church, and he's barefoot. And I'm like, why are you barefoot? He's like, I wanted to tell you earlier what happened. There was this lady at one of the houses. She would be best described as crazy, Okay. <laughs> crazy. And she was a crazy cat lady. Now, if you have cats, I'm not calling you a crazy cat person. I want you to hear me, okay? That's not, I'm not calling you that. But if you are crazy and have cats, you might be a crazy cat person, okay? But this lady was crazy, and she had cats, all right? And so she, and she, and she, like, the cats owned the house, and she lived in, like, a corner of it. I mean, there was, when you'd walk in, there was cats everywhere. There's cats in the ceiling. There was cats walking around. There were cats everywhere. And it's like, this, and she was like, this is my corner where I sleep, and the cats take over the the whole house, and her yard looked like the like an Amazon jungle. You almost had to have a machete to walk through this thing. Okay, I'm going somewhere with this, so bear with me. I promise you. And so here's what happened: she, they had cleaned up, and they had worked for about two hours on her her outside of her house to get it presentable. And they moved the the third hour. They moved to her backyard, which was worse than the front yard. And they worked for another two hours there. And as they were weeding and cleaning out all of, of the flower beds and everything, here's what happened. They found a 30-gallon tote. And the lady, when was asked, Thomas, you know, the kid who was eventually barefoot, he had shoes on at this point. He went up to her and he said, ma'am, what's in this tote? And she Immediately, tears welled up in her eyes. <laughs> That's my favorite cat. It died, and I have it in there. Would you guys bury my cat? And can we have a little funeral for the cat? And Thomas goes, okay. So they dug a hole big enough for a 30-gallon tote to go into. They dug the hole for half the time. I mean, there's 12 people in this house. I got six of them digging a hole. They dig a hole, and they get ready. Now, Thomas is going to go into ministry, so the lady says, Thomas, would you just say a few words? So he preaches a cat funeral, okay? Not kidding. At the end of the cat funeral, and if you want to verify this story, go talk to my wife. This happened, Okay. The end of the cat funeral, she's like, can we sing Amazing Grace? They're like, okay. So they held hands and sang Amazing Grace over the cat casket, I guess, all right? Now, here's where it gets really strange, okay? The tote was heavier than it should have been. It was a little sloshy. And Thomas asked, how long has your cat been dead. And he was expecting, what? What would you think? A week, a few days? Three and a half months. So, 
And that thing was sealed. So all the sloshing was cat juice. You don't want cat juice in your life. You don't want that. I'm just telling you, you don't want that. And so as they were picking up, after Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, cat in there. They, the Paul Bearers, a lady named Miss Melba and Thomas, they pick up the cat casket that now has cat juice in it. And so they take it and they go to put it in the grave they had dug. And the lid pops off and cat juice fills Thomas's shoes. Now, he's just preached a cat funeral. And they say, Amazing Grace, you can't freak, okay? He was the pastor of the cat funeral, okay? And this sloshes on him, and he's like, Cat juice. He said, inwardly, he was going, Oh, oh, he can't do it. He can't do it. He can't do it at all. So they bury the cat. They do it over. On the way back, he throws those shoes out. He's like, he's, he, when he got there, he's, he's putting hand sanitizer on his feet, and he's like, un, unclean, unclean. He's like, he's in, coming out of the book of Leviticus. I mean, it's a mess. I tell all you that. That's true. I'll tell you that this. Why on earth would you keep a cat, a dead cat, for three months one of you to go to, crazy, yes, okay? That's crazy, but if we really are honest, what, what is the deal? She found that cat to be precious. She loved that cat, and it caused her to do and to live differently because she loved that cat. Because you don't just hang on to a dead cat. And that's where I want you to go. That's the whole point is this, this, that sometimes, sometimes when, and not just sometimes, when we love somebody and we ha- find something to be precious, we do strange, weird things. We, 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 our life is different because of that. I remember in college, my roommate Dan, he folded a thousand swans, like paper swans, like origami swans, to give to his then-girlfriend he was going to propose to. We made fun of him mercilessly. I still do to this day. That's a weird thing to do. We made fun of him. Why did he do it? Out of devotion and love because he found her to be precious. And I want you to know something, that when we find Jesus to be precious, we live differently and are a strange people. And so we see, we're going to be in 1 Peter here, and I want you to note something. Here is the two things. I want, this is the statement. If you're going to take something from this sermon, I want you to hear these, these, this statement, okay? Jesus, or there is a difference between, between profession and possession of saving faith. Let me say that again, okay? There is a difference between profession, means to profess faith in Jesus, and possession of saving faith in Jesus. There are those, and we know this, we see this in Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers 
of lawlessness. So there was this group of people that called him Lord who did mighty religious acts in his name. They prophesied, they taught scripture, they did all this kind of stuff, but they never truly knew Jesus. And because of that, on the great reckoning day, when they faced their their God, when they faced Jesus, they are told to depart because he never knew them. They professed faith. They would profess it. They called him Lord. They did all these things in his name, but they never possessed saving faith. Do you know the difference between the two? It's one is to say, one is to have. Now, both of them, both profession and possession of faith, wherever you are on that spectrum, both, in both situations, you must claim Christ. Because Jesus said this very clearly. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. It's not like closet Christianity is not a thing. You have to be out about it. It's got to be the thing that defines you. And so what we see here is that there is a difference between a profession of faith and a possession of saving faith. And I want you to see this works out in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And it says this. As you come to him... A living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And it starts, it starts right here. As you come to him, it's talking about Christ. As you come to him as a living stone. This is a metaphor, okay? And it sees Jesus as a living stone. That's an odd thing to think about, but he's living because he's resurrected, and he's the stone because we're going to find out later he is the, the chief piece of, of a building, Okay, so as you come to him, this living stone, he's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He's rejected by some. You come to Jesus, and there are some who see him, this living stone, as chosen and precious. In fact, in this verse, it says that God sees him as what? He's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. Precious. We can understand as that is an object, a substance, or a resource of great value that's not to be wasted or treated carelessly. He is the chosen one of God. Jesus being the Messiah, the one who God plucked out, the very Son of God that we see here, come to make payment for sin, to be resurrected, to show the payment was received and accepted. He is that living stone. To God, he is chosen and precious. However, men reject him. And so we go on, and as we unfold this story about this living stone, Jesus, it says in verse 5, you yourselves, and he's talking to believers here who are scattered all about, and he calls them elect exiles, believers who are chosen out. In verse 5 it says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is this living stone chosen and precious by God. Jesus' people are called out to be also stones, and he is building us up into a house, into a priesthood, into people who can commune with God and express the presence of God to other people. Remember in the Old Testament, the priests, what did they do? They were the go-between between God and man. They made sacrifices to God to cover sins in the book of Leviticus. In fact, 1 Peter has a whole lot to do with the book of Leviticus. And if you want to have fun and you want to you just read some weird stuff, go read the book of Leviticus. 
It's all about this group of priests and how they were to offer sacrifices to God. All of the book of Leviticus, by the way, just points to Jesus. There's five sacrifices that have to, have to be made for sin. Okay, there's the sin offering, there's the burnt offering, there's the peace offering, there's the grain offering, there's all these different offerings, and all of them represents a different part of what Christ came to do in fulfilling that system, and it was a bloody, nasty mess all the time. Can you imagine going to church? Like, here's what they would do. They would have to sacrifice a goat or a sheep, or if you're poor, you could brought turtle doves, okay? And they would hack these things open and in most cases hurl the blood against the altar. Could you imagine? <laughs> you walked in here today and you... <laughs> Kelly, let me borrow your knife. I'm going to throw this against the altar and light this on fire. It's weird. Shows, the, shows how grievous sin is and how it needs to be covered. And he's building us up this priesthood that we minister to God and we minister to other people, show them how they can be reconciled. That's, that's who we are. He's the chief stone. He's the big living stone. And he's building us up into a, 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 a priesthood, a holy people. Now, a, a holy house, if you will. Think about it this way. If you want to know if you're sinful, go to the beach. Why am I saying that? Because when you see somebody building a sandcastle, especially if it's a really good one, your heart says, seek and destroy. That looks nice. I'm going to crush that. When they leave, I'm Godzilla. Okay? Take that thing out. Think about building it up that way. He's building this up. There's a house being built. Jesus as the cornerstone, as the giant living rock, and all of his people as this holy priesthood, it says in verse 5. Yourselves, you're like a living stone too, are being built up as a spiritual house. God is building a spiritual house through these people to be a holy priesthood, to be a go-between between God and people, to offer right sacrifices and worship to God, but also to offer the presence of God and reconciliation with God to other people. And then it says this, you're to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The book of 1 Peter, to understand it, you have to know the book of Leviticus because this is the fulfillment. He sees the people of God as the new Israel. He sees the people of God as not only just as Israel, but those who who are the priests to God, who can offer acceptable sacrifices to him, who've, who've been made acceptable by the chief sacrifice and now can offer sacrifices and be a go-between between God and man. It's amazing who the people of God are through Jesus. And then it goes on to say in verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying a stone, or behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Jesus is putting a, so God has put a, a precious cornerstone in Zion, which is Jerusalem. It's saying this, there's a precious stone that God has placed, and it is, it is for the building up of the people of God. It's the cornerstone. It's precious, and it's Jesus. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What we have there, faith in Jesus, this chief stone, means you won't be put to shame. 
So God has done this precious thing by giving his precious one and only son to be this chief cornerstone. A cornerstone is this, especially in this time when, when the way they were building buildings. It is akin to a foundation. It is that stone without which everything else would fall apart, like Jenga. You play Jenga? What is Jenga? It's a, a marvelous idea that made ton of, tons of money because you take cheap wood and you stack it on top of each other, and people play this game in which you push out the pieces that aren't bearing the weight of the structure. You take out the piece that is loose, you stay in the game. If you take out a piece that is load-bearing, what happens? It crumbles. Jesus is that cornerstone. He's this precious chosen cornerstone. Everything is built upon him. He is the first, the last, the only. He is the precious one of God. All salvation is built on him, and all of the people of God are built on him. He's the point of the Old Testament. He is the, he's fulfilled in the New Testament, and he's coming again. He is precious. And that is what Peter talks about. But in verse 7, it says this. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. And so remember, there is a stone, there's this Jesus that is described as a stone, which is precious, which every spiritual house is built upon. He is precious to God. He's precious to his people. However, there are those who reject him. And don't believe in him. And that's, that's spelled out in verse 7. So, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so there are some who see Jesus as precious and they believe and they follow. And there are some who see Jesus as, as a stumbling block. They can't handle it. How could you be the way, the truth, and the life? How could there not be other ways? How can, how, why? And they stumble over Jesus time and time and time again. Who is writing the book of 1 Peter? This is not, it's not a hard one. Peter. Who is Peter? He is one of the first disciples called by Jesus. Do you know he basically witnessed the entire ministry of Jesus firsthand? He saw it all. We know a lot of things about him. We know he kind of puts his foot in his mouth. He speaks up. He's the one that got out of the boat and sank. All the other jokers were in the boat. At least he got out there with Jesus, right? He was the guy who witnessed so many of the miracles of Jesus. And I want you to put this into perspective. He has seen firsthand those people who have seen, made a profession of faith but have rejected. Made a somewhat of a profession of faith, like the Pharisees, who claimed to be godly people, who claimed to know the Scriptures. But they ultimately would reject him and crucify him, Right? And he's also seen those people who have believed, those, those who have believed and seen him as precious. He has seen the ministry of Jesus. He's seen the people reject him, and he's seen the people come to him. Now, here's the deal. You're here today, and most of the people, if you were asking them in this town if they believe in Jesus, they're going to be like, sure. I mean, we're in Tennessee. Bible Belt buckles here. Of course they believe in Jesus. They might even believe, know the facts about who Jesus is. And so for us to think, well, what, sometimes when we think about re, those who reject Jesus, we think about ardent atheists who, who mock the, even the, the, those simpletons who, who it, just partake of the opiate of the masses, which is religion. 
Oh, they reject Jesus outright, forthrightly. No, the most dangerous position you could be in is to be close to religion and even close to the message of Jesus. Even maybe profess faith in Jesus, but not to possess faith in Jesus. And I want to give you a case study to show you exactly that Peter would have seen this in the life of Jesus. If you would, turn to, turn to John chapter 6, verse 66. I understand that that's not great. Okay, 666. Okay. Just flipping your Bibles, go back to the Gospel of John, Peter here, and I want to give you a little context before we get to John 6, 66. So here's what happens in John chapter 1, okay, or John chapter 6, okay, John chapter 6, verse 1. In verses 1 through 15, he feeds the 5,000, okay? Remember, what does he have? He's got an, what's akin to a Happy Meal, okay? He's got some little kid's lunch, and he breaks it. That's a theological sound, okay? He breaks it all up passes it all around, and they have more than enough to feed 5,000 men and women and children, and there's stuff left over. And so people are following Jesus. Do you know why? Because they're hungry, and this guy is the traveling buffet, okay? I'm still amazed at some of these awful restaurants that exist, (laughs) and the reason people go to them is like, the food's really awful, but I get a lot of it. I mean, the steak is like a color gray it shouldn't be, but I can eat all I want of it. I think it's cow. It looks delicious. I can have 17 rolls. It's amazing. He's got the buffet train. They follow him. And so what happens in, in, the, in chapter 6 is he starts making it very uncomfortable for them. And he knows their hearts, and he, he knows they're just coming to get their fill of bread, and he wants them to see things. He wants them to know the spiritual reality. He's going to cut them so they can understand truth. He's trying to awaken them from their slumber. And so he starts talking about himself, and he starts doing the I am statements, okay? I am statements, you know, they're, they're talking about, basically Jesus is claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. I am that I am. Remember Moses, burning bush, who do, I say the, who do I tell the people you are? And he says, say that I am that I am. The I am statements, Jesus is claiming to be God. It is not that hard to, hard to see. That's why if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your house and starts telling you Jesus is not God, it really makes me mad, okay? Can you come to my house, interrupt my coffee, and tell me Jesus is not God? That is not going to work, okay? All right, I, on a bad day, I'm running out the house like saying, I believe in the Trinity too. And like, oh, Lord, okay, help us, all right? I need help. Pray for me, okay? He starts saying these things. It's all over the scriptures that Jesus is the Son of God. The I am statements are like, they're all, he's, he's saying, I am God. They got, everybody got it. You know how, you know they got it? They crucified him. And so here's where it starts. In John 6, 22 through 65, he's talking to those people who are just come for bread. He starts saying, I am the bread of life. Immediately, especially religious leaders, are getting uncomfortable. Then he goes, and that is John 6, 35 and 6, 48. He says it in this little speech to these people who are following him around. He says it again in John 6, 41. He says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And he is going back and thinking about the Exodus story where the people were fed by man in the wilderness. They had no other place to go. There was no Taco Bell to swing through. They were having to eat what God provided, and God had this bread-like substance fall every morning, and that's what they ate. And he is saying, I am that bread of heaven. Then he goes on and he says in John 6, 51, he says, I am the living bread. 
Remember, he's a living stone, and, and, and we see Peter talk about him in, in, in 1 Peter. Now he's the living bread, and his, the whole idea is this. When the people were in, were in the wilderness, they only had one chance of life, and that was if they ate the bread that was provided for them. It was life-giving, and it was from God. He says, I am that life. You have to believe in me more so than that. I have come that you might have spiritual life. I am that bread. Without it, you will die in the wilderness of sin. You must believe in me. And then we get to, and if actually, if you want to back up, if you're already in John 6, 66, back up to verse 52 of John 6, and it says this. <laughs> this was very controversial, as you could imagine. And because, you know why it was controversial? Because he's proclaiming to be God. And then it says in verse 52, the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Which is a legitimate question. This is very odd. What are you saying? Verse 53 says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I am him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died, not like the manna. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This statement is insanely difficult. If you were to go and leave here today and decide you're going to go down to Broadway in Nashville, and you decide you're going to go eat down there, you will probably encounter a homeless person. If that homeless person came up to you, got in your face and said, if you eat my flesh drink my blood, you can have eternal life. What would you do? You would be the road runner. Okay? Cloud of smoke, hole in the wall. That's crazy. You want eternal life? Take yourself a bite. Get yourself a cup with some blood. It's delicious. If you drink this, you eat this, you'll have eternal life. This is lunacy if he is not the son of God. <laughs> it's crazy. It is out there. It is wild. And, and, and here's what it does. Hop down to verse, six, uh, uh, verse 66. After this, many of his, what word is that? Disciples. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Does that say Pharisees, the enemies of Jesus, or Sadducees? What word is that? Disciples. So who turned back? Those who were claiming to follow him. But when he starts saying some loco stuff, they're like, I didn't sign up for this. I came to eat bread, not flesh. I came to have my fill of something else, not blood. Remember what Jesus said? In the wilderness, the people ate the manna and they died. 
Whoever, eat, whoever eats of me will live forever, have eternal life. Jesus is using provocative language on purpose to show how desperately we have to live for Christ at the center of our lives. He is that spiritual food without which we die. He is everything. He is all in all. He is that precious one we run to. He is the slain lamb of God. He is the one who fulfills all the Old Testament law. He is the one who has brought salvation. He is living. He was dead. Now he is living. He's the one who paid the penalty for sins. He is to be precious. And there are so-called people who profess faith. They would say, this verse calls them disciples, okay? They were those who were following him, but even profess faith in him. But they obviously did not possess faith because they did not see him as precious. They just wanted their stomach filled. They wanted some kind of spiritual reward from following him, okay? They wanted maybe to have their best life now. Or they wanted Jesus to make them happy, healthy, and wise. Or they wanted Jesus to fill their stomachs. Or they wanted Jesus to be the right answers to the difficulties they face in life. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It goes, farther than that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood and find me to be the only way that you can know salvation you got zero part with me when that happens people found him to be this rock that is precious and 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 holy and chosen by god and precious to his people it becomes a stumbling block to other people because they don't want their religion changed they just want to be a little bit happier to be a little bit more filled. And Jesus has no, those ultimately, those who just profess faith run away. Because Jesus calls us to love him more than anything. And because of that, he works in us and starts taking away all the things that make us, distract us from loving him. Sometimes that hurts. You talk about when he says, I'm the vine. He says, any branch that's in me, I prune, I trim back. And so this, this, is, this is big time. The disciples left. They profess. But then there's this group. And says, so Jesus said to the 12, so this inner circle, remember the, the 12 disciples? Not just the other disciples that went off. They were like, this is crazy. This is not a great church growth strategy, by the way. Jesus, we got this group following us. It's huge, man. What are you going to preach next? You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. They're like, oh, I can see them going like this. Like, our offering's really going to go down. Oh, my gosh. You might want to cut back on that eat my flesh, drink my blood stuff. You imagine that, that leadership meeting, he's ringing of the hands like, a lot of people left, okay? He's thinning the herd on purpose. And he said to the twelve. Do you want to go as well, go away as well? They had just seen this. Remember, the guy, Peter, who's about to speak here, the guy who wrote 1 Peter on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talking about the stone the builder rejected. He's seen people reject the stone, even people who they claim to be disciples. They probably even knew him because Jesus was kind of like this traveling preaching show, okay? And people were following him. He pro- they probably knew some of those people that left. We can imagine that, I think, safely. And we get this, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Like, where else could we go? I have a notorious habit when I drive late at night. Inevitably, to try to stay awake, I eat something. 
and I'll pull in a gas station because I always get hungry when there's nothing around, like in between big cities that have actual food that you could eat. And so often I stop in gas stations. And there are like hermetically sealed things that I could eat. Chips, cakes, and like even like a banana has its own like God-given seal, okay? They even sell those for like 12 bucks at like, you know, twice dailies, right? You want to be healthy, it's going to cost you. Inevitably, what do I look to? Something that's been on a roller gr- griddle for like seven years. Mm-hmm. I look at that, I'm like, that looks good. I'm going to eat that. <laughs> Amy's almost like, don't eat gas station food. I'm like, it's, got, it's, it's hot. Sure, it's fine. And like, they're not, not just hot dogs, you know, they put the hot dogs on the top. I go for those things like those tornado things that they put like the weirdest stuff ever. Like, it looks a Thai food one. It's got fish sauce in it. I'll eat that one, okay? Or like, like buffalo cheesesteaks and stuff, like weird stuff. I'm like, I'll eat those. And you get two for a dollar because I'm like, what a value, okay? I was going to eat one. I went to, we stopped at this one and we stopped at, stopped at this gas station in Kentucky one time. And that was my first problem was stopping at a gas station, in, a rural gas station in Kentucky. It was dangerous. And I got out and they had this, they had this, it looked like this giant hot dog, like a 12 pound hot dog, like a, like a wiener dog, okay? And they had it and it was stuffed in a loaf of bread. It like a, it's like a pig in a blanket on drugs, you know? I mean, it was huge. It was like on steroids, like, oh. And I saw it and I was like, I want that. I'm going to eat that. And I was like, how much is that? And they're like, you want that? I said, yes, give it to me. I'll be $12, you know, here, take my money. I got it out of the car, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Flop it down, Amy's like, what? what? Why? <laughs> it's, like, it's like the size of a toddler. It's a great deal. I could get all the way back to Louisville on this bad boy. I just like, oh. took the first bite, and I was like, that's rancid. I better take a few more to make sure. And... I'm eating this thing like, <laughs> and then I was like, nope, I'm going to be sick. So I, I pulled the sausage out of the loaf of bread, and I throw the sausage to the back. Two hours later, like, my dog's back there. I'm not just throwing sausage. I should have, <laughs> I just chunked Clean it up, woman. That's not what I do, okay? I threw the sausage in the back so that the dog would eat it. We got to Louisville two and a half hours later. That sausage was still there. My dog will eat plastic. She wouldn't eat that thing. Why, do you, why would you dare eat food at a gas station? Because that's the only thing open. And that's what, that's what Peter's saying. Like, you're the, only, you're the only game in town. I know this is hard, and it, it's very obvious, and you can see this through the Gospels. They don't completely get Jesus. When he's doing stuff, they don't get it. It's when the Spirit comes, and he preaches the sermon at Pentecost in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 2 that he starts to really get it, okay? And even after that, he sometimes doesn't get it, just like all of us. He does not get it, and he, I witnessed it. So he, they're probably confused. We know they are. You can see their confusion. They still don't get what happens at the cross. Remember, he denies Jesus. And he takes up, remember, he takes up a sword and he cuts somebody's ear off and says, you're not dying. Well, how else can he be flesh and blood and, and pay those, those penalties for sin if he doesn't die? He doesn't get it all the way. But he does know this. He doesn't have to get it all, but he sees Jesus as the only game in town. He says, Lord, who can we go to? 
Only you have the words of eternal life. Only you have the words of eternal life. No one else has those. And so i got to believe what you say, even if I don't understand it. Only you have the words of eternal life. i got, I got to follow your ways even though I don't get it. i got to endure this hardship even though I don't understand it because you are the only game in town. See, the difference between those disciples that left and those who say is that they found Jesus to be precious. So precious, in fact, that even if they didn't get it, they had to believe him. And that's the difference between someone who professes faith and someone who possesses faith is they see Jesus to be incomparably wonderful. He's so precious. He's worthy of giving up your life for. He's worthy of taking up that cross and following him because he is the only one who has the words of eternal life. And so in a day and age, when, they want, when you want to pick and choose your religion, Jesus says, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That sets us apart. We go to him even when our stances are unpopular, okay? Why? Because he is right and the world is wrong. He's right about sexuality. The world is wrong. He's right about there being one way to salvation. Buddhism is wrong. Islam is wrong. Secular humanism is wrong. It's all wrong. Why? Because we're smarter? No, it's because he has the words of eternal life. Who else can we go to? He is the one-stop shop. So there's no room for syncretism. There's no room of mixing and matching. It's no reason. I'll take a little bit of Jesus here and a little bit of Buddha there. You're either all in or you're all out. He has no rival. None at all. There's no other game in town to find eternal life. Every other religion in the world says do good to be good and be accepted. Christianity says you're not good, but one was good on your behalf. So you just believe in him. We're so different than the rest. We have one who's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by him. Most of the other religions have many ways. We only have one. We are set apart. You know why? Because our Jesus has no rival, no equal. He is the best. Just the best. The highest praise goes to Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only game in town. He's like, you're starving, and there's one gas station. And here's the good thing. What you eat at Jesus' gas station will not make you sick. He is that good. Not only that, he recognizes this. Says Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed that you have come to and we have believed and come to know that you are the one of God, the Holy One of God. Not only are they convinced that he has the words of life, Peter in a in just a he gets it in part, but doesn't get it fully. He recognizes Jesus as the Holy One of God, the one set apart, the one who's perfect in his perfections, the one who is right. I want you just to think about this for a second. We're held captive by our own opinion. I want you to think about something. Maybe you're wrong. What do you mean? I'm not talking about if you believe in Jesus, you're wrong. No, I'm, that's, what I'm, that's my goal is to see, let you see him as precious. What I'm saying is that well, I just don't think that's right. That just makes me upset. There's only one way. It seems a little narrow. But I don't want to do that. I don't think that's right. My desires say this. Do you ever think maybe you don't have it all figured out? Do you ever think that you don't have all the knowledge in the world? Ever think that your opinion might just be worth nothing.
You ever think that you're sincerely wrong? Like, but I believe it sincerely. Great. You're sincerely wrong. You can believe very sincerely that if you get in a cage with a lion, he won't attack you. But you'd be severely wrong. I just wanted to say this very clearly to us. If he is the Holy One of God, which means he's perfect in all of his ways, including his knowledge, including his understanding, if he is the creator, then who better to tell you how this thing works? And maybe your opinion, all of it, has to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. Well, I think this. Well, big whoop, what does the Bible say? But, big whoop, what did he say? And you can keep believing what you want to, but it's just wrong if it doesn't line up with who he is. Where else could you go for eternal life? He is the most precious. He is the Lamb of God slain. He is the stone that is chosen by God, rejected by men, but precious in God's sight and precious to those who trust him. There is a sincere difference between those who profess faith and those who possess faith. And it can really be seen in this parable that Jesus told that there was a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. Something so valuable that he went and sold everything he had to possess that field. That is the nature. <laughs> that is the nature of seeing Jesus as precious. However, on the other end, you have the rich young ruler. Remember this guy? Now, he looked apart, and he was very religious, okay? He would have passed the profession test, but he doesn't pass the possession test. Remember him? He comes up to Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he said, oh, yeah, I've kept the commandments. Honor my father and mother. I haven't cheated anybody. I've kept the commandments. Now, whether or not that's true or not, let's not go there. But Jesus, looking at him, loved him. It says that he loved him. He loved him enough to just skewer him and said, one thing you lack Go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. What does it say about the guy? What, what our modern evangelical way would be like, and so he repented, but the Lord let him keep his wealth so he could still be rich and drive a Bentley, okay? And so he's got a private jet too because that's the Lord's blessing him, holler, okay? Let the Lord let him keep it. Know what happens. He went away sad because he had great possessions. I've kept the commandments. I want to inherit eternal life. Oh, there's something else on the throne. There's something else more precious to me than you. That is the difference. Profession of faith without the possession of saving faith will lead you to hell. And if you want to know if you have possessing faith, you have to see Jesus as precious. I realize something. I'm, I'm telling you, and the Bible is telling us, commanding us to do something that we can't do on our own. It's like if I took two random people and put them together, and I said, you love each other! Do it. Now. But no, do it. Command to love. Command. Find her precious. You love him. Yeah, I know he burps a lot. You love him. 
Does it happen like that? The Bible commands us to do things that are impossible. But you know what? The Spirit of God through the proclaimed Word of God draws us near. And what we used to see as something to be rejected through the Spirit of God, now we see as beautiful. And here is what I pray for you. And that uh, Some of you have come from death to life, and you need to proclaim that. That you maybe even professed faith in the past, but now you have believed, and you need to come. And we need to talk. We need to schedule you a baptism that you can profess your possessing faith to everyone here. If you come see me afterward, grab an elder afterwards. Some of you are just going to be at this place where you're just confused. You need to talk it out. You know what? There are great men and women of God in this church who are more mature probably than you are at this point. That's not a bad thing. You need to come alongside of them and let them help. There's an elder team here that's helped to point you to that. Because here's what I want you to know. Jesus is better than the best thing this earth has to offer. And if you, the difference between saving faith and just a professing faith is that you see Jesus as precious. And I pray somehow through the power of the Spirit, that you would see Jesus as the greatest treasure. And so here's what we're going to do. We've, this whole day has been kind of jacked up, all right? That's all good. We're going to invite the band to come up. You didn't know this. We're going to play What a Beautiful Name in just a second, all right? So band, come on up. And uh, we're also, after we do this, we're going to play that song, and then we're going to take communion. And so here's what I want us to do. I just want us to sit for a minute in truth. What does that look like? Just bow your head, close your eyes. There's nothing magical about bowing your head. What does it do? It's a posture that helps us to think. So if you would, just bow your head and close your eyes. And I want you to really ponder this question. Do I have professing faith? Or do I have possessing faith? Wherever you are on that, as you ask that question, I want you to ask God, what is next? What are you calling me to do? Are you calling me to profess that through baptism, to showing that I, I have faith in you and that you are my way, truth, and life? Do I need to repent of some sin that, sh- that, that is keeping me from loving you? Some things that show that maybe I'm not loving you like I should? you need to come to Christ? Let's call. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you need to go and talk about your precious Jesus to that neighbor? Do you need to learn how to do that first? Do you need to give up something to show that Jesus is, is better than what you've been holding on to. Father, help us to see how precious you are and how precious Jesus is. Open our eyes, God, to your preciousness. Spirit, move and reign. God, help us respond in kind. In Jesus' name, amen.